Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. This is the ninth in a series of podcasts promoting the Seminole Wars Foundation's self-paced virtual challenge, the Major Dade Memorial March to Fort King. We launched December 22nd, and registration remains open. Just visit us at www.seminolewars.us. Army Major Francis L. Dade's movement of a combined artillery and infantry column from Fort Brooke to Fort King is a controversial one, mainly because it ended in disaster. Dade knew such movement could be dangerous, but believed the intent of the orders from General Duncan L. Clinch were clear. Reinforce the garrison at Fort King without delay. This would explain why he did not wait for the two additional companies that were expected to arrive any day to join him. Why were communications interrupted between Fort Brook and Fort Drain, where General Clinch was planning a campaign to confront the Seminoles about removal to the West? What was the terrain that Dade's column had to traverse? What were his troops eating on the march? Did either the terrain or the food hamper Dade's ability to move the troops with alacrity to Fort King? What were his troops carrying? What role did their heavy great coats, worn to protect against cold and rain, play when the troops came under fire? How did Dade's men maintain their professionalism and good order when the Seminole assault ripped through their ranks? After they won the battle, why didn't the Seminole take any prisoners among the soldiers who still survived? And were the Seminoles' actions to dispatch the wounded soldiers a massacre, as portrayed in news accounts, and a violation of accepted norms of war? Autodidact, living historian and military reenactor Jesse Marshall returns to the Seminole Wars podcast to answer these questions and to provide perspective on why things went the way they did. The outcome was not foreordained. Jesse Marshall, welcome back to the Seminole Wars. Glad to join you. General Clinch was aware that Major Dade was moving a column to Fort King. Was it his understanding that Major Dade would reinforce the garrison at Fort King so that they could send available troops to bolster his offensive against the Seminole? Because he was concentrating his forces at Fort Green, he had drawn off most of the garrisons at St. Augustine and at Fort King. There was only a single company at Fort King, maybe 30 or 40 effective men, and it was orders that he had cut before before the emergency had really gotten out of control for companies landing at Tampa Bay to proceed through the Indian nation along the government road, which we now call the Fort King Military Road, and reach and reinforce Fort King. There was no communication between General Clinch at Fort Drain and Tampa Bay because as hostilities increased, it became evident that the mail riders could not make it through. Kinsey H. Dalton of the 3rd Artillery was the mail rider carrying mail through the Indian reservation from Tampa Bay to Fort King. And I believe it was in August of 1835, he was waylaid and killed several miles from Fort Brook and the mail scattered and his body mutilated. And it was presumed that he had been killed in retaliation for the Seminole killed. The incident at Hogtown, rather than because the Seminole tribe as a group had decided to resist removal. So the garrison at Tampa Bay was isolated, and the post commander in late December, Francis Belton, questioned whether it was wise to send the detachment to Fort King, given that there was intelligence from the friendly Seminoles that the hostile party was ready to fight. Major Dade supposedly took it upon himself 
declare that the standing orders required them to attempt the movement, and it was Dade who essentially volunteered to take command of that detachment, which was ambushed and destroyed on the 28th of December. Major Dade, seven other officers, and essentially a hundred men cut to pieces. Consider that General Clinch only had about 200 regulars with him, all told, at Fort Drain, and you can see how important Major Dade's reinforcement was to General Clinch's operations on the north side of the Seminole Reservation. Dade's column was under strength. Why was this so? And would his command's fate have turned out any differently? Dade potentially could have waited a day or two for two more companies of regulars to arrive at Tampa, and they could have marched together as a detachment four companies strong. Now, if they had 200 men, would 200 Seminoles have been able to defeat them? Perhaps, perhaps not. Dade's command had two companies of artillery. And what type of troops was he waiting for? Infantry or artillery? There were artillery companies as well. A larger number of troops might have had better impact on how it turned out. But General Clinch took a lot of folks out of Fort King, so they had only one under strength, perhaps, company up there. So Dade was feeling he needed to reinforce them as quickly as he could. That's right. And he was most of the way there. All the regular companies were under strength. Two companies with Dade had to be made full to 50 men rank and file by detachments from the other units that were at Tampa. So there were a handful of infantrymen of Dade's own company, B, 4th Infantry, that were detached and placed in the ranks of the two companies that he commanded. How well trained were these soldiers? Were they raw recruits or did they have some time under their belt? Company B of the 2nd Artillery had been in the Creek country prior to deploying to Fort Brooke. They had drills in the light drill when they were in the Creek country, and they were at Fort Mitchell in the wilderness. Although they didn't fight any Creeks, they did have a few run-ins with white squatters who they were running out of the Creek uh, reservation that they were almost like skirmishes, a little no gunfire. When the troops arrived at Fort Brooke, like Captain Frazier's B Company of the 3rd Artillery, when they arrived at Fort Brooke, we have the inspection reports for the months prior to the battle, and those are at National Archives. People have copied some of the data from them. And there's comments about the unit, that they their drill and instruction was good, and that the clothing that they were wearing was in good order. In other words, they were not wearing their uniforms, they were wearing their fatigue dress which is proven by Captain McCall, who specifically states it was affecting to see the bodies scattered in the woods in their sky blue clothing, which is essentially the fatigue dress of the Army of the time, rather than the dark blue full-dress uniforms that they would have worn on parade. Also a reference, they were wearing their forage caps, which the Seminoles carried off from the battlefield. When we think of military units marching, especially if they're marching in the wilderness or on long distances, we tend to envision them as having a drummer and a fife player. Some music to go along to announce that this unit is coming through. What do we know about the composition of musicians in Dade's column? B Company of the 3rd Artillery, present in the battle and destroyed at the time, had no musicians with the company. Looking at the 3rd Artillery's regimental returns over that period of time and the 6th Infantry's, I've, I've been through those records as well. Each of the 10 companies of each of those regiments should have two musicians, but you'll see that several companies will have no musicians at any given time, and some of them have only one. So in other words, the Army was not separating out recruits to specifically train them as musicians, to send them to ensure that every unit had its musicians. It would appear that if a man were musically inclined, they would train him to use these instruments and then dispatch him to a unit that needed them. But it's interesting to see that most of the companies are deficient. So I don't know if Gardner's 
C Company 2nd Artillery had any musicians present, but if they did, there would only been two of them. And from the reference that Dade's column was padded with men detached from other companies at Fort Brooke to bring both Gardner's and Frazier's companies up to 50 bayonets each, quote, that suggests to me they didn't bother with musical instruments. Any musicians present were evidently armed. And I say that, too, because I believe it was Alvord mentions that the stirring music of the drum and fife were not there on this battlefield. I know that there's a reference that I believe it's Private Wilson who jumped jumped up after playing dead and tried to make his escape after the Seminoles began, well, after the wounded were being dispatched on the ground, Wilson supposedly jumped up and struck and killed an Indian and was shot down in turn. There's reference that he's a musician. It's been ages since I saw his military record. I believe that he was listed as a musician in civil life, but I'm not certain that he actually was serving as a musician. He might have been serving as a private. I would have to refer to those records again. If a given military unit did have the requisite number of musicians, what type of military songs of the day might they have been playing? When Clinch's column was marching to the Wiflacucci at the close of December 1835, the command, the militiamen, the regulars were singing the old tune, A Light Heart and a Thin Pair of Britches. That was one of the songs they were singing. The military men would have known songs like Bruce's Address and other military marches and so forth, but they played them for funeral honors and things of that nature. Bruce's Address was played as a funeral dirge at the battleground when the 4th Infantry gave the funeral honors for Dade and his men on the battlefield on February 20th, 1836. I've seen other references to particular songs, but they're not songs I'm familiar with. They did play, I have looked some of them up, some of the music that they played also also in funerals at St. Augustine, the military funerals, included some classical pieces that are still played today, but they would play them with drum and fife, and they would play it slowly during funeral services. Each regiment of the regular army would also have a band, but the band usually was stationed wherever the headquarters of the regiment was. And it was not infrequently the case that the regiments of the U.S. Army did not serve embodied in Florida. We've established there was no marching. No cadence for Dade's column marching up the Fort King Road. What about colors? Were they carrying any regimental or United States national colors? And if not, what prevented them from doing so? The infantry tactics of the time were quite clear that battalions of less than five companies were not to carry colors at all. The 2nd Artillery Regiment's color, the Stars and Stripes, would have been present with its headquarters, which was then in Augusta, Georgia. So Dade's men, in any case, wouldn't have had a color. Each artillery regiment only had two colors. They had a regimental and a national color. In any case, the infantry tactics adopted in 1835 are quite clear that even if the entire regiment with its headquarters present with the regiment, they would only carry one color at a time anyway, usually the regimental color in the field. The infantry regiments just carried a regimental color, and then in 1841, the infantry regiments were allowed a national or stars and stripes. Prior to that point, they generally just carried the regimental color, which is, had an eagle on it and a scroll with the regimental name. But again, a battalion of less than five colors companies was not to carry a color for multiple reasons. Namely, you had to form a color guard around it, and so you're pulling corporals out of the ranks of a handful 
handful of companies. And secondly, by law, a battalion of militia, for example, was five companies strong. And even though the regular army allowed only one color for each regiment, at least when it was maneuvering, even if it had two colors for parade, militia law allowed for two colors, one for each battalion of militia of five companies. But the regulations and the drills are quite clear that any battalion of the army below five companies was not to carry any color at all. Jesse, I've heard that Major Dayton's Seminoles were fairly friendly. Did he just misread them? Was he obstinate in ignoring reports to the contrary, or what? It's my understanding that Major Dade had been warned by Halata Amatla himself that the anti-removal party was powerful and willing to fight, but that Dade felt that the orders of General Clinch to reinforce Fort King were imperative, and he evidently was not convinced that the anti-removal party was so numerous or bold as to make an attack, and even if they did, that they could defeat him. However, they did. It's difficult or impossible at this day to place how many of the Seminole were actively anti-removal and how many were tacitly so. For example, we have from the comments of Sprague's History of the War from 1848, from his own personal knowledge of many of the Seminole leaders, that the Tallahassee Band of Seminoles, which were not inconsequential at the time, were largely opposed to removal, but they also opposed active warfare. And for the first years of the war, the bulk of the Tallahassees evidently stayed out of the war. But we see that the victory over Dade and the attack on Fort King must have had a powerful effect from the accounts that Sprague could collect. It wasn't much more than 200 to 250 warriors involved in those actions on December 28, 1835. And that's out of over a thousand warriors. So within two months, the Seminoles did muster over a thousand warriors to attack Camp Izzard. You can see an increase in the recruiting for fighting the United States actively. But after Camp Izzard, the numbers dropped off again, probably in part because concentrating that many people in that particular area would have worn out the provender since the Seminoles had largely abandoned their own farms and they would have been relying upon whatever stocks of corn they had kept from the previous year, hunting deer and so forth. So they couldn't remain embodied without facing starvation. So the bulk of the war, the Seminoles were widely scattered. Did Major Dade maintain communication with Fort Brooke during his trek up to Fort King? Dade was in communication with Fort Brooke through the 25th of December. There were two companies that were expected to arrive at Tampa Bay that were going to follow him up the road under Grayson and Mount Fort. Major Dade clearly felt a great sense of urgency to move his troops with alacrity up to Fort King. This despite the knowledge that additional troops would be coming that could accompany him, and despite the fact that friendly Seminoles had warned him that there was probably going to be a fight along the way. It's my understanding that Major Dade had been warned by Halata Amatla himself that anti-removal party was powerful and willing to fight, but that Dade felt that the orders of General Clinch to reinforce Fort King were imperative, and he evidently was not convinced that the anti-removal party was so numerous or bold as to make an attack, and even if they did, that they could defeat him. However, they did. Major Dade didn't know how many Seminoles to expect. Do we at this great remove today have any idea how many Seminoles faced Major Dade's column? It's difficult or impossible at this day to place how many of the Seminole were actively anti-removal and how many were tacitly so. For example, we have from the comments of Sprague's History of the War from 1848, from his own personal knowledge of many of the Seminole leaders, that the Tallahassee Band of Seminoles, which were not inconsequential at the time, were largely opposed to removal, but they also opposed 
active warfare. And for the first years of the war, the bulk of the Tallahassees evidently stayed out of the war. But we see that the victory over Dade and the attack on Fort King must have had a powerful effect from the accounts that Sprague could collect. It wasn't much more than 200 to 250 warriors involved in those actions on December 28, 1835. And that's out of over 1,000 warriors. So within two months, the Seminoles did muster over 1,000 warriors to attack Camp Izzard. You can see an increase in the recruiting for fighting the United States actively. But after Camp Izzard, the numbers dropped off again, probably in part because concentrating that many people in that particular area would have worn out the provender since the Seminoles had largely abandoned their own farms and they would have been relying upon whatever stocks of corn they had kept from the previous year, hunting deer and so forth. So they couldn't remain embodied without facing starvation. So the bulk of the war, the Seminoles were widely scattered. Departing Fort Brooke, Major Dade led his command on the Fort King Military Road. What was the terrain like that they encountered along the way? Fort King Road was a blazed trail that carts and wagons, horsemen and footmen could move along without any difficulty or confusion about their route and with a minimum of physical difficulty. At the time of the battle in 1835, the only parts of the Florida terrain that they were traversing that would have been thick woods would have been the low ground, the swampy areas near the creeks along the rivers, sloughs and wet savannas. Most of the region was covered with what were called the time, Pine Barren. And in fact, the Fort King Road wasn't like a modern road. It was basically a blazed trail. Pine Barrens were principally made up of longleaf pine trees, longleaf pines. Cones would open during the common forest fires, and those fires would blaze through the Pine Barren and burn out all the underbrush quite frequently. And then the pine cones would open to the longleaf pines, and they'd grow quickly. And they would have a high umbrella of canopy that was out of the touch of fire, and they generally are fire resistant. In fact, even today at Florida State Parks, they have controlled burns to eliminate a lot of the non-native shrubbery and trees and to let longleaf pines grow up in their stead. So these, you look at photographs of the longleaf pine barrens in the 19th century, and they're not close together. They're pretty widely spaced. A lot of the pine barren country looks like parkland, especially after it's burned off. I bring this up because, in fact, at Dade's battleground itself, the description was the ground was almost entirely open without undergrowth, except for some clusters of palmettos near the north end of the battleground and the pond that was to the right of it. And the rest was pretty much open pine land, so much so that Major Dade didn't expect any ambush at all. But the Seminoles were hidden in the grass, and there was a grassy slough that crossed the road. Some Seminoles evidently used this as sort of a trench to hide themselves. So on the day of the ambush, they didn't even have flankers out because the ground was so open, evidently, that they probably weren't even necessary. At least in his view, it was understood that they expected to be ambushed when they're trying to cross the rivers where the woods were thick with undergrowth that would have been to advantage seemingly to the Indians because it's not specifically stated in contemporary records. Men in those times were used to walking a lot, but apparently some made sport of it. Tell us about that. There used to be a sport called pedestrianism in the early and late 19th century, where particularly European sportsmen would walk as far as they could for long distances. This was resurrected in the United States in the 1960s by the Kennedy marches, where people were challenged to walk 50 miles as fast as they could. You look up the Kennedy marches in the old papers, you'll see men frequently could make the 50 miles in as little as 15 or 20 hours, depending on their physical condition. What kind of pace would Day's men have kept during this long march? 
At the Corps, in recruit training, each U.S. soldier of 1835 would have been trained to march at a sustained 90 paces per minute, 28 inches heel to heel. And the purpose in Recruit Depot was particularly to make the men, whether they were tall or short, march at that 28-inch pace so that they could keep closed up when they needed to, etc. That's a little more than two miles an hour, and that's carrying a knapsack, a musket, ammunition, haversack filled with food, and a water canteen. That's besides their clothing that they're wearing and whatever they have packed in their knapsacks on their back and a blanket. They did have a small wagon along with Dade's command, so they may not have carried all of their equipage during the course of the trek. That depends. Jesse, talk about what the men would have eaten along this trek. What kind of provisions did they have at their disposal? On the march, the troops would have carried rations of bacon and hard bread principally. Bacon would have been cooked in the campfire's prior to the march. And the hard bread, of course, is like a thick cracker. These would have been tumbled into the haversacks of the men. It was customary in the army at that time, they only ate two meals a day in garrison. Although frequently the men would snack a third meal, but that would be at their own expense through the sutler, perhaps. In fact, working men generally in the 19th century, I see reference, they usually only ate two meals a day. What we do is we are mimicking the wealthy of that time. The wealthy at that time would have evening meals. And today, most modern Americans, they have evening meals that are not dissimilar to the evening repast of a country squire, for example. The common farmers, by nightfall, they wouldn't have eaten for hours and they would be tired when they go to bed. <laughs> Jacob Mott, an army surgeon, says on the march, the men mainly in the campfires in the morning would just heat up their coffee in their tin cups. The rations on a march would be prepared before a march. Uh, that's what the haversack was for. So, canvas bag the men wore on their side. The hard bread, well, the problem with that was it was an untreated bag, so if it rained, the men's food would get soaked in rainwater. But evidently, that wasn't considered a negative overall. Army rations didn't vary that much. The bacon was preferred for marching rations, but if they didn't have the bacon at Fort Brooks Spare, they would have just given them salt pork, which is close enough. They certainly had their coffee and then whatever they chose to eat out of their haversack. The officers were charged in the regulations with making sure the men didn't eat any more of their rations daily than they should. And normally the haversack would carry four or five days worth. So a smart officer in an inspection would be able to tell, like, you've been eating too much of your uh, rations. What would you do to that soldier? It doesn't really say in the regulations what to do, but perhaps you'd take his haversack away from him if he was eating too much. They also could have supplemented their diets by hunting while they were on the march. Uh, troops on the march in Florida subsequently often mention shooting deer and cattle and butchering them. So I'm not saying the Dadesmen did or didn't do that, but it's possible on their treks they might have shot some livestock and might have used that to their advantage. Unfortunately, Ransom Clark, the only soldier who survived, who left us any account worth keeping, didn't mention that they had shot a steer and had a nice steak dinner before what was to become the last day on earth for these men. Prior to the ambush, Dade's command had bivouacked the previous night at a pond a few miles south of the battlefield. Pond is still there. There's a house next to it now. Dade's men built a small breastwork there before setting out. We can imagine that during the battle, the troops divested themselves of the majority of equipment. And I say that because there are inspection returns by the Army in 1835, where the Army inspectors found that the troops on parade, they couldn't load their guns while they were wearing all of their equipment. 
the knapsack on her backpack was so designed that it kind of swagged, to use the term they used, such that it lay on top of the cartridge box. The men couldn't open the cartridge box flap on the right hip because the knapsack would sit on top of it. In other words, they had to take their knapsacks off to handle the ammunition in their pouch. We have it on good authority that Dade's men, at the time they were ambushed on the morning of the 28th of December, were wearing their greatcoats, which is a heavy sort of guard coat with a cape on it and a quilted collar. And it was the only bad weather garment that U.S. troops had at the time. It was wool, but can still keep you warm when it's wet. In the British Army, the great coats were cut so the men could wear them over their accoutrements. And that was an added means of keeping the paper cartridges in the leather cartridge pouch dry. The U.S. Army's uniforms in the early 1830s were redesigned in 1832 at the behest of General Maycomb and President Jackson. And Maycomb had them designed after the British Army's 1829 uniform. So the patterns were essentially British, except in American colors and fabrics, particularly to copy the British uniforms. Complaint by the British Army was that the greatcoats should have at least a slit in the sides so that the men wearing them could handle cartridges. The British were wearing the greatcoats over their accoutrements in wet weather. No reason to believe the U.S. Army was any different. There's a statement by George McCall, etc., that Dadesmen were wearing their greatcoats over their accoutrements on the morning of the march because of the rain. There is, in fact, a Huddy and Duvall lithograph from 1839 or 40 that depicts the uniform dress of the cadets of the Military Academy at West Point. And in that lithograph, there's a cadet in a greatcoat standing guard duty. What is evident from the shape of of the cadet's derriere is that he's wearing the greatcoat over his cartridge box, unless he's supposedly a misshapen cadet. I think it's pretty obvious he's wearing the cartridge box under his greatcoat. So it seems to have been a practice like the British that the Americans were doing. And so this means that... What this means is that after Dade's men were ambushed, the men, at least in the main column, they would have had to essentially remove their knapsacks and divest themselves of their greatcoats before they could even reload their guns. So we can see that they had to strip in order to fight. By ordering his men to wear their great coats in rainy weather, they were able to keep their proverbial powder dry. Yes, they're bypassing the pond. If the flankers had been left out, and he had evidently drawn the flankers in so they could move more quickly on the road in the open pine country, flankers were out, they would have had to flounder through that pond, and then they have to risk wetting their ammunition, etc. 120 years after the massacre of Dade's men who were wearing their cartridge belts under their great coats, U.S. military Academy cadets were still being warned not to repeat Dade's mistake by wearing their cartridge belts under their garments, even though getting their cartridges wet was no longer a detriment when engaging the enemy. They still needed ready access to what were now magazines holding their rounds. I recollect reading a Korean War veteran's memoir. He was an officer in Korea, an artillery officer. He mentioned that West Point, they were told about Dade having the men put on greatcoats and that it was a bad idea. You know, always keep them in the field. The men should be able to ready to fight at all times. I don't recollect specifically, but I think he mentions that in Korea, he kept a note of that in his mind, that not to let the men put their ponchos on over their cartridge belt, have them put on their ponchos and strap their cartridge belt on around them. And that strikes me too. If you look at the National Korean War Monument in Washington, D.C., it depicts a platoon of foot soldiers wearing ponchos walking through a rice paddy. But you notice they don't necessarily have their ammo handy. 
How were the men advancing along the road? Were they calling cadence, or were they just in a kind of route-step march? According to Ransom Clark, before the battle took place, the troops were in column of route, and so they would not have been marching at cadence, which makes sense anyway. They were in a wilderness, essentially. Now, troops on the march were allowed to unfix their bayonets. There's specific regulations about that. Perhaps some of those club guns were because some of Dade's men didn't have their bayonets fixed. I would hazard, though, that in the skirmishing that Private Ransom Clark subsequently describes that anyone that had a bayonet fixed probably removed it. It would have been an impediment to loading and firing rapidly. Two generals, Clinch and Gaines, advised their troops dressed down so that they're not targets to the Seminole. General Clint, again, he dressed as a private, and at the Battle with Lacucci, most of the officers were also dressed as privates, carrying muskets even in some cases. So they weren't distinguished as officers or as targets for the Seminole riflemen. General Gaines thought frontier soldiering had different requirements. He didn't care if his officers wore even military clothing and etc. General Scott, when he came to Florida, evidently made a comment about that. He thought the officers should wear at least their undressed frock coat, dark blue with skirts, shoulder straps to show their grade and at least carry their sword. Scott did not press the point. He just thought the officers should do that, but evidently Clinch never gave the order to force the officers to do so. Major Dade, following the General Scott method of wearing your epaulets, riding on top of a horse, presenting a big, clearly identifiable target, and, as it turns out, the first target. The general understanding is that Major Dade himself was the first casualty of the ambush. Dade had served in Florida for quite a while, and knew many of the Seminoles, and it's suggested post-war by Captain George McCall that, as he understood it from a Seminole Negro named August, that McAnope knew Major Dade, and it was McAnope who fired the first shot and evidently struck Major Dade, and then the firing commenced in earnest from the left of the Seminole line to the right. How many men died in the opening shots of the ambush? The numbers are tough. We can't calculate with certainty because Private Clark is our principal accountant of the subject with his multiple accounts of the battle. And in his multiple accounts, he either states that about half of the command were killed or wounded in the ambush, or he says about a third of the command, or he says that seemingly half. So it's not quite certain exactly how many men were shot or incapacitated even when the ambush struck. We do know that there are about 30 bodies in the breastwork by the end of it, so the other 60-plus were scattered in the woods and on the road. Only about a third of the command were in the breastwork at the conclusion of the fight where most of them were killed and subsequently were found by General Gaines's force in February of 1836. In the battle, the men built the breastwork. Apparently, they were familiar with making breastworks. Clark says that every night they build a breastwork for defense and they put out guards around it. They acted as if they were in a hostile country. Dade's battle continues to capture our imaginations. What are some of the problems, though, in trying to piece together exactly how it played out? Dade's battle is a fascinating action in itself, and we have several accounts of the battle. It's just the problem is they're all the accounts essentially of one man, Ransom Clark. However, they are kind of like many different accounts because they were written down by different people. And so there's different things that are emphasized in the several accounts. Louis Pacheco, the Negro interpreter with Dade's column, was behind Major Dade, uh, some distance when the ambush struck and in one of his accounts he makes this comment that seems curious at first he says the Seminoles rose from the palmettos like a string of peppers in a streak of lightning 
I always puzzled about that comment until it just dawned on me one day. There's references in the Seminoles of Dade's battle in December 1835 were stripped and painted red. And then secondly, when you have the leader, McNope, fired the first shot on the left near the head of the soldier's column. And then you had basically what the soldiers would have called a fire-by-file, where the signal was fired on the left, and then each warrior commenced firing from the left. So if you imagine the warriors popping up from the left to fire sort of in echelon, I guess you could kind of imagine what Pacheco is trying to describe, if the warriors are painted red and they're rising up as if they're on a string and being pulled, and they're rising up and firing as they do so, like a string of peppers and a streak of light as the muzzle flash of their gun goes off as they stood up to fire, killing and wounding between a third and a half of Dade's command. Pacheco says that when the firing commenced, he looked down the road and he saw the column, and he watched a lot of them fire their guns in the air. The line wavered, is what he says, and then Clark mentions that there was some confusion in the firing. At least some of the men's initial shot was more dangerous to the squirrels above them in the treetops than it was to the Seminoles. And that may have been one reason why Pacheco then notes that a party of Seminoles advanced, evidently, and captured him. And he was near the road. So if the soldiers' initial fire was ineffective, that may have been one reason why the Seminoles, at least the head of the column, actually advanced, took Pacheco a prisoner and uh, maybe even Captain Frazier, because there was a reference that when his corpse was found, he was tied to a tree. Clark mentions that there was some confusion in the firing, but the men became cool enough, you know, at least those that survived the ambush. Dade had brought along Lieutenant Benjamin Alward from his own infantry company, but at the end of the first day, he dispatched him back to go to Fort Brook. Apparently, he gave something of a eulogy at West Point. What insights do we gain from that? Yes, if we take uh, Lieutenant Benjamin Alvord, he was lieutenant in, in Dade's own Company B of the 4th Infantry Regiment, and he claims to have accompanied the detachment on their first day's trek, evidently. He gave a speech to the Corps of Cadets at West Point, I believe in 1839, and there's a transcript of it, and he's describing Dade's battle in certain detail, and Alvord wrote letters from Fort Brooke when the survivors were coming in, and some of them, parts of them, were published in, in the public prints in early 1836, so he was very familiar with the battle. He obviously spoke to the survivors, etc. Lieutenant Alvord's views run somewhat contrary to what historians in later times would say about the battle. What did they say, and how did he view the column's conduct differently? There's a narrative about the battle that's been shaped by historians. It suggests from the first pages of some of these narratives, there's the assumption that Dade's men were doomed, that they were uh, sacrificed, that they were the wrong men in the wrong place. But Lieutenant Alvord begs to differ. He says they were an elite of military skill and that by every measure they demonstrated that skill to the death. And that's what he had to communicate to the cadets at West Point. By and large, his statements correspond with what Clark has to say, that they largely fought the battle in light infantry order after the ambush. Instead of breaking and running and panicking, the men lay down until Gardner got them in hand and he actually got them to rise up in a swarm. That's the exact word that Belton uses in an official report, and we have to assume that he's paraphrasing one of the survivors, that they rose up in a swarm to form into their light infantry order, and that in doing so, they uncovered Seminoles that were hiding down in the grass and, and whatnot too close to the road, and they were beaten down with club muskets and bayonets, and the remainder backed off from that. Was this advance into the Seminole ambush a bayonet charge or something else? 
it's not a bayonet charge per se. It's just forming as light infantry, which would have appeared something like a charge because they were advancing toward their opponent. But they had to do that to get into the cover of the pine trees on the west side of the road. Probably because the battle has so long been called the Dade's Massacre. General understanding may be that Dade's men were in total reactive mode. Half the column was wiped out, and so they just hunkered down and then were picked off man by man. However, an analysis of the battle shows, in fact, they did take the offensive. How did they do this? The Dade's battle, Brevet Major Belton of the 2nd Artillery, who gave the official report of the battle, states that after several rounds from the Seminole ambush, the troops rose up in such a swarm when they formed in light infantry extension. In other words, jumped up off the road into the tree line in which the Seminoles were mostly ensconced, that when they did so, it showed some Seminole warriors between the files as they were scattering. Bayonets were used, guns were clubbed, so there was some hand-to-hand fighting, and a few Seminoles are recorded as having been killed in the battle, and that may have been the point at which Seminoles actually suffered casualties. Obviously, some warriors who had unwisely positioned themselves rather too close to the road so that when Dade's command swarmed out as light infantry off the road, they were caught unawares before they could escape in time. If you look at the maps of the battleground drawn by officers who retrieved the bodies, like Rose's map, or even the cruder one done by Woodburn Potter, you'll notice a lot of the bodies of Dade's command are in the road, but there's also many of them in the pine woods to the west of the road, which is evidently where they deployed into skirmish order. Also, by clearing the road, a cannon could fire up it. Pacheco had taken cover near where Major Dade and Captain Fraser fell at the head of the column, or they were actually in front of the column between it and the advance guard. So Pacheco could see the column being fired into when he looked down the road from where he was laying down. He was captured, and he said that it was once the cannon commenced its fire, firing canister, and the canister, like hail, rattling against the trees. He says that's when the warriors decided to withdraw. That gives us a little tactical snippet, doesn't it? That the cannon, once it was deployed, was firing canister up the road to the north, while the troops had deployed as skirmishers to the west, driving the Seminoles back, and evidently using club guns and bayonets. Dade's cannon had something of a Whitman sampler of ammunition. Some were solid shot, some were grape, so forth. Not quite appropriate when the ambush came. How did they adapt with that? Troops got their cannon firing. Checo withdrew with the Seminoles when the men were shattering tree trunks with canister fire, spraying the woods to the north of the column. Some of the troops that toured the battlefield in 1836 mentioned the, the trees being smashed high up. A gentleman among the South Carolina Volunteers, or perhaps a Tennessee Volunteer, it was either uh, M. Meyer Cohen or perhaps it was Josephus Con Guild of Tennessee. When they were touring the battlefield in 1836, one of them claimed that one of the survivors of the battle, either Sprague or perhaps Thomas, was present and explained that once they'd run out of canister, the gun crew was firing the solid shot high in the trees under the... The only way they could prove to any advantage was to smash the boughs of the trees and to drop them down on any group of Seminoles or concentration of Seminoles that were visible. Shooting a solid shot at a single... The Indians were scattered. They, they were not particularly visible. 
Clark says they, they were either laying on the ground or they only rose up. All you could see was their face and maybe their forearm as they rose in the grass or from behind a tree to fire. And that was just didn't make a good target. So the cannon, the only thing it could do with the solid shot was try to smash the trees and drop the treetops down onto the seminal position. Even though they had the Whitman sampler of rounds, they used them to whatever effect they could get out of them. Did they use them until they ran out of rounds? And then what became of the cannon after the battle? Until the end, until the 49th round was fired and the 50th, I believe, was loaded, the match went out. They used a port fire or a slow match, one or the other, to fire the gun at the time. And when the fire went out, evidently there was no means of firing it in that last round, and perhaps there was no crew left, so they spiked the gun with a ramrod, which I take to mean they took a musket ramrod and jammed it in the vent and broke it off, where the Seminoles, not having advanced tools, would not have been able to clear it and then subsequently use the gun. On taking the battleground, they trundled the cannon outside the breastwork. There's certain evidences that the cannon was in the breastwork, by the way. The the artist's renderings of the battle usually show it next to the breastwork or adjacent to it, but it appears to have been in the breastwork. Clark, even in one of his accounts, says he heard the Indians trundle it out of the breastwork or something to that effect, but there's some other references. And one of the better maps of the battleground by an army officer enumerates the gun was in the... It was taken out anyway. Carriages burned and the Seminoles buried the tube perhaps 100 yards east of the breastwork in the marsh, tried to hide it, but Gaines' troops found it and they erected it over the officers' graves vertically as a grave marker for the officers. It might have been removed subsequently in the next year. It might have been left in place until 1842 when the bodies were taken up and sent to St. Augustine. A lot of speculation about that. I somehow doubt that an uh, army officer would go out of his way to lose a piece of ordnance at that caliber. Personally, I suspect that it was sent back to St. Augustine and refurbished and put back into serviceable condition and then recycled either for the war with Mexico or it perhaps sat around in the Ordnance Depot at St. Augustine in the late 1861 and might have been put into use by the Confederate Army, which used the antique iron six-pounders to a great degree throughout the war, though they were somewhat antiquated. What did the positions of the bodies found in the breastwork tell us about how the battle played out? in its final stages. The breastwork itself was peppered with bullets on each of its exterior faces, but also evidently on each of its interior faces, showing very particularly the type of crossfire that the Seminoles had over the position. Most of the bodies of the 30 men that were dead in the breastwork, one of the descriptions is the majority of them were piled essentially in the northwestern corner, as if they were clustered against a hailstorm of course, it was a leaden hail, and they were just basically shot until they were either dead or incapable of resistance. So the army took offensive action, a short advance, and then the Seminoles withdrew. What happened after that? After the initial ambush was broken off, the Seminoles withdrew, not out of sight. They were still visible, but out of range. Depending on the number of troops that were still capable of action, there's a significant number of men that were wounded on the ground. So there's another description that's quoting a survivor stating that throughout the action, there was a significant party of mounted warriors that were riding all the way around the ground, and they were visible through the pine woods. So 
obviously, if that was the case, then Captain Gardner it would not have been wise for him to advance very far from the point at which the cannon was posted and the bulk of his wounded were laying because he might have been cut off by that mounted party, potentially. He immediately commenced cutting down trees to form the breastwork, and while the replica at Dade's battlefield is well done and is to the correct scale from the map of Lieutenant Rose, particularly rather high at four feet and in one corner, but most of the descriptions by Gaines's command mentioned that it wasn't even knee-high at its highest. It was just three moderately-sized pine logs piled up. The Seminole counterattacked once they saw that the troops were fortifying in place. And as Lieutenant Albert mentions, there probably was discussion of the survivors heading back down the road to get into the swamps along the Withlacoochee where they had a better chance of fighting it out one-on-one against the warriors in a dense hammock. There was more cover, but that they would have had to leave the wounded to do that, and that obviously wasn't going to be done in the case of these officers and men. The chivalry of the army was at stake, you see. Alligator just says, short man, a great brave, he shook his sword and swore. There's the assumption that that's a reference to Gardner, but that it may or may not be. There were, besides Gardner, Lieutenant Bassinger was uninjured in the ambush, and also Lieutenant Keyes and Henderson were, were injured in the ambush, but were evidently still in the fight till it's closed. I'd just like to mention, too, that when the Seminole attacked the second time, Ransom Clark, in one of his accounts, and I believe it's the one he gave for the Portland Daily Advertiser in Maine in 1837, he states that Gardner ordered the able-bodied men to form a light infantry order outside of the breastwork to cover it, and that the Seminoles formed their line like a semicircle around them, a semicircle whose radius was the range of their rifles. In other words, the Seminoles weren't coming any closer than they had to. Because they were rifle armed, they had a, a range and accuracy advantage over the musket-armed troops. And so Clark says that at length, once the Seminoles had surrounded the entire position, they had a crossfire that eventually struck almost every man. He was firing in his front, and he's shooting from behind a pine tree, and then he's getting shot from, from the rear into the side. And then he withdrew back into the breastwork himself. He says at length, Captain Gardner ordered the few men that remained outside the work back into it. Once the skirmishers had all been defeated, then the ones that were left tried to get back in the work. Because the position was surrounded, Seminole riflemen were firing from all points of the circle perimeter of the ground. In fact, the breastwork itself was described as being peppered with lead bullets on each of its exterior faces and on each of its interior faces. The Seminoles, of course, were not blazing away with machine guns. They're firing hunting rifles. While the battle reenactment compresses this stuff into an enactment of about 45 minutes with maximum rapidity of fire and the Seminoles shooting pretty quick, the obvious description one takes from reading Clark's various accounts is that over a period of a couple of hours, the Seminoles, any time they got a shot, they took it. Because the ground was not covered with any underbrush to speak of, the only cover was the trees. So you're fighting from behind a tree, and you rise up and you're firing. Except by doing that, you're now visible to the Seminoles on the flanks or even behind you, even across the breastwork. And there's some evidence that there were even Seminoles across the pond. There were at least two soldiers' bodies recovered in the pond who obviously were killed there, and either they were skirmishers that were positioned in the marsh to cover that front, or they had tried to make their escape through the pond. It's, it's not at all clear which, but that shows there were Seminoles on the other side of the pond as well. We discussed breastworks earlier. They certainly had experience in making breastworks. 
At this point, they decided to make one. Troops had built a little triangular breastwork and raised it knee-high or so. Seminoles attacked again. Private Clark says they formed a perimeter around the breastwork that was essentially the range of their guns. Do we know if the Seminole intent was to wipe out Dade's column to the last man? We don't have any evidence that every Seminole engaged in the battle with the intent of killing. And I say it in this method, does every soldier in the U.S. Army engage any battle with a specific intent to kill? In the 19th century, the answer would be no. Soldiers were trained to take the drive the enemy from the ground and make them run away, and then you win a victory. You don't have to kill them to win a battle. And I recollect even reading a newspaper print from the Civil War era where some officer was bragging about having killed some enemy soldiers and he was a high-ranking officer, and the critic was saying, what have we come to when even now high-ranking officers are bragging about having killed men? In other words, if you have to kill a man to do your duty, do it, but the important thing is to do your duty. (laughs) We have some accounts, not only by Clark, but also George McCall, the 4th Infantry, later talked to present on the battleground after the battle when some of the wounded were dispatched. Clark mentions from what he could tell, it was mainly some Negroes that killed the wounded and were speaking to some of them in English beforehand. One of the Negroes that was on the ground later told George McCall that McCall claimed and evidently believed him because he passed it on in writing in a letter that it was in some Indians and Negroes, but evidently not all. So you have a dozen or so wounded men languishing in the breastwork and you have perhaps a hundred warriors and black Seminoles poking around. When the newspapers of 1835-36, they says they killed the wounded. Well, who did? And Clark, his accounts are given that, well, it was the Negroes that killed the wounded. But the Negroes that were there told the army that, well, no, it was some Indians doing that too. In fact, there's a specific reference that the Indian that killed Lieutenant Bassinger after the fighting, it concluded, was a particularly bad man, to use the term that was given to McCall. What we come to is a circumstance not dissimilar to frontiersmen. There were certain men of a so-called meat axe disposition, which is a term I've seen used twice. In other words, guys that just saw an Indian and they shot him, even no matter what. And the Seminoles evidently had their parties with them, too, that were willing to dispatch the wounded. When you read McCall's statement particularly, you get the impression that, if anything, the majority of the Seminoles were merely bystanders at the time the wounded were killed and didn't partake in it. We know that the Seminoles and the Creeks and Indian warriors generally didn't take prisoners, but we also know that many times the victims of their attacks escaped. And then you have to ask yourself the question, well, how many of them escaped because the warriors let them escape? That's not something we can really answer. Since the Indian mode of warfare was to eliminate you know, the enemy wounded, etc., it wasn't out of order for the warriors or any Negroes that did kill the wounded. It wasn't something that the, evidently would have cons- been considered out of order among Indian combatants generally, even if not all of them partook in it. How democratic were the Seminole in deciding to go to war and then in selecting those who would go to war? I want to emphasize this. Milfort, the Frenchman that lived among the Creeks, he says that they're, even in their warfare, they were entirely democratic, and we can pass this on perhaps to the Seminoles. In other words, when a war leader wanted an expedition, he would fire his gun, and he would tell the people of the town, and they would go out of the town, and he'd fire his gun, and he would make some war calls. And the warriors that wanted to follow him would grab their guns and go. But the warriors that didn't want to go didn't go. And nobody asked any questions, and nobody said anything. The warriors that fought against me your Dade, no one compelled those warriors to go fight. So those were the guys that were willing to fight. Jesse, you mentioned that Micanopi knew Major Dade 
and by any accounts, had no animosity towards him. And yet, he fired the first shot, took out Major Dade, and started the war. How do you explain this? There's some suggestion that he was at least politically compelled to partake in the attack, if for no other reason than to spare himself the fate of Charlie Amatla, perhaps, the friendly chief who had been shot and killed, supposedly by Osceola, for cooperating with the removal program. While Indians generally were capable of great brutality, doesn't mean that you could claim that all the Indians were committers of it. Why didn't the government punish killers? How did you identify them, first of all? Not very easy. And then considering that, for example, in common raiding, that killing women and children and men was all fair game in Indian warfare. Once the war is over, how do you deal with that ex post facto? I do know that in Minnesota, Sioux War, during the Civil War, they did hang a number of the leading warriors after that outbreak. But it's a curious notice that Captain Upton Frazier, the commander of B Company, the 3rd Artillery, now he had been marching with Louis Pacheco when the ambush struck near the head of the column. And Gaines's men found his corpse south of Major Dade's body, but north of the column, he was tied to a tree. So it looks like perhaps he was not killed outright. He might have been tied here where he fell. We know that Pacheco, from his own account, hit the dirt and was overrun by the Seminoles. So we can imagine that those same Seminoles would have secured or rifled the bodies of Dade and Frazier. And if Frazier was tied to the tree, perhaps he was alive at some point. But we also see from Pacheco's description that they were arguing over, well, is it kill him or not? So perhaps Frazier was dispatched at some point. While we had three soldier survivors, only one of them gave an account that ended up being republished and retold for a much larger audience. Luis Pacheco later came back and he gave an account. What seminal accounts do we have from the battle? Oh, that was Alligator and Sprague. Alligator gave the seminal account of the battle, principally, and it's reproduced in Sprague's book, Florida War, published in 1848, and republished more recently by the Seminole Wars Foundation. Alligator says that among the troops, there was a great, brave little man who shook his sword and swore, yelling, oh, God damn, God damn. That's generally been interpreted to be Captain G.W. Gardner, the commander of the troops during the balance of the fight. Although, I mean, that's speculation, too. As likely as not, it was, but there were several other officers on the ground. For the men following customary tactics. When you read the Scots tactics the army used, the custom was that to form a company of troops, first sergeant or orderly sergeant would call them in to fall in and he would arrange them into their ranks and place the NCOs or non-commissioned officers in their posts. And only once the company was formed did he turn it over to the commissioned officers, namely the captain. The captains and the other officers would stand by with their swords sheathed while the company was forming. They only drew their swords, evidently, when they took command of the company. And by drawing their swords, they were demonstrating that they were assuming the mantle of their authority over the line of battle. So the officer at Dade's battle that was shaking his sword, he wasn't shaking it at the Indians. He was showing the men around him that he was still in authority, sword being the symbol of the officer's authority. Jesse, admittedly, we've only scratched the surface of all that could be told about Dade's command. What single-volume book would you recommend that could give our listeners a more in-depth exploration of this tragic military march for the U.S. Army? I really think that Frank Laumer's book, Massacre, is probably the best single book on the Seminole War yet produced. I'll give it that much credit. It reads easily and it's a well-written story. He proved upon the historical end of it with his second work, Dade's Last Command, in the 90s. But it's not at all as readable. It may be more historically accurate, but it's not at all as fun a read as Massacre is. So Massacre can catch the imagination, and I think it's caught a lot of people's imagination. 
Jesse Marshall, thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Well, I thank you, Patrick. I hope that I've made comments that might actually be useful for your podcast and might be useful to some of your listening public. Thanks for being with us. They certainly do. Everything you've said is helpful. Indeed. (laughs) If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.summonawars.us for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars Podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2021. All rights reserved. Front bumper music The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Reedy Youngman. Back bumper music Second Seminole Win by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.